As we come now to God's Word, if you'd like to read along with me, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. By now, that's no surprise to us as we continue our read through Philippians. It's in the letter to the Philippians in chapter 1. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, this is your word. It comes ultimately from you. So for that reason, would you help us to desire these things out of desire for you? As we hear now from your word, Lord, would you produce in us hope, draw us near to the steadfast anchor in Jesus. Would you bring light to our minds and hearts, we pray, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll read in Philippians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 19. Actually, I may back up and pick up that short sentence before it. So the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better, better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. I want, if God will help me, uh, for us to think through especially the opening lines of this section. We'll save the famous uh, to live as Christ, to die as gain line for next week and sift through what that is and looks like. So to kind of set us up here, you'll remember that this is a letter. Paul's writing to the people in the city of Philippi, and so we're eavesdropping upon that letter. And as eavesdroppers... Now, 2,000 years later, it's still of great benefit to us. This is the word of God for all of God's people. And yet at the same time, this letter was not written specifically to us here at Big Creek. It was written to the Philippians. And so we have to work a little bit to sift through the context of what Paul's saying and, and why. Now, Paul has said in the previous section that he is 
imprisoned. We don't know exactly which imprisonment that was. He had multiple ones, uh, but he's in prison. And so then in this section, in verse 19, he says at the end of it that this, uh, this prison situation, will turn out for my deliverance. And I have to wonder, how did he know that? What does he mean by that? Because he seems to have a surprising amount of confidence about the statement he's just made. Now, even though it might seem a little hmm, interesting, it's not unreasonable for Paul to say this about his prison sentence. We know that he had seen deliverance from prison before, even in the city of Philippi. Uh, if you were with us when we first started this, maybe a month and some change ago, uh, we started not in the book of Philippians, but back in Acts chapter 16. And this was about 10 years prior when Paul was first visiting this sort of budding church in Philippi. And you remember when he first was there, it was just a handful of, of ladies who met by the river to pray. And, uh, and what happens after that in Acts, we did not talk about. One day uh, we'll touch on this. But uh, Paul then has a run-in uh, with an evil spirit who's present in a fortune teller. And as a result of casting that evil spirit out, he and Silas are put in prison. This is the situation as he picks up in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 24. Having received this order, he, that's the jailer, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself. For we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. There's more to this story, but we'll stop there. Uh, we know here in this situation, in this very city of Philippi, Paul had earlier seen the impossible happen, that he was sprung from prison. This was a miracle. Even the laws of nature are being bent here. And so Paul knows that no matter how dire his situation, God is infinitely stronger, stronger than his chains, stronger than the bars of the doors, stronger than even sin and Satan himself. And so it's not unreasonable then for Paul in, in this opening of Philippians to encourage the people he's writing to to pray about his prison sentence and to encourage them to keep on praying as he's done here in 19. It's not unreasonable for him to trust the help of the Holy Spirit. It's not unreasonable 
for him to have eager expectation and hope in deliverance because he knows that God is able. However, we need to ask the question and examine what does Paul mean when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. Because I don't think he's talking about, at least primarily, about a release from prison. I think he's talking about something much bigger here. Let me show you why. He says uh, several times in this section that he wants to continue with the Philippians. He wants to visit them at the end of it. Uh, He says, I want to come to you again. So we know that he wants on some level, of course, to be released from prison. But he also says that this deliverance, where is it? The end of verse 21, will come whether by life or by death. So if deliverance is going to come by death, that's not quite a release from prison, at least what we might think of. So how exactly will Paul be delivered? In all of Paul's letters, the vast majority of of times when he uses the word deliverance, it's in reference to sin. It's often translated as salvation, from sin. In fact, the Greek word, geeky moment, bear with me, I'll keep it short. The Greek word here for deliverance is soteria. It's where we get uh, the word soteriology, which in theological terms is the study of salvation. So it's pulling together all of what the Bible says about how a person is saved. So soteriology would, would say that according to the Bible, We know that all people are in the bonds of sin, bound to sin. We still willfully sin. We still do it of our own thinking. But even our own wills themselves are bound to sin. And so we don't desire the things of God. We desire our own ways. And the outcome of this, the wages of sin, the scripture says, is, is death separation from God's good presence. And so we need to be saved. We need to be delivered. We need God in Jesus to free us from the power and chains of sin. And he does. So remember in in the earlier context with the Philippian jailer, that when the doors spring open and the guy runs in, quick, bring the lights. Oh, hey, we're all here. The Philippian jailer then, after those prison doors had flown, 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 whatever it is, they've come open, and he meets with Paul, something in him realizes his own need. So his first words are, what must I do to be saved? He sees that even though they were physically in chains, he now sees that he has some spiritual chains, and that that situation is much more tragic than the situation that Paul was in, and he needs to be rescued from it. Paul's answer then is, believe in the Lord Jesus. Of course, not just in your brain, 
but in the heart with the whole self. Trust in Jesus. Depend upon Jesus. Put all your chips on Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. When that happens, the, the wages, the complete bonds of sin, are broken. We still sin, but we're delivered from its bondage that, uh, in a sense, we are free in Christ. Uh, so we come in the righteousness of Christ before God, and this, this means the world to us. This means the world to every Christian, including Paul, because he needs that salvation just as much as we do. However, when we're talking about deliverance here in the context of Philippians, I still think Paul means something much bigger than even this. I think, based on the context, that when Paul talks about being delivered, he means more than just from his prison sentence and the hardships and trials that come with that. I think he means much more than sin and even death. So what is Paul saying he will be delivered from? You don't need to be a Greek scholar or have fancy books or know about soteriology, just eyes and ears to listen. Look at what he actually says. Where is it? Verse 19, at the end of 19, this will turn out for my deliverance. But deliverance from what? Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. Paul says here that he knows he will be delivered from shame. Now, that then brings a new question for us. <laughs> what does that mean? What does that look like to be delivered from shame? We have to take a brief rabbit trail here. We know that not all shame is bad. Some shame is even designed by God for good purpose. In fact, uh, in the book of Jeremiah, there's several places where he talks about this. Um, in Jeremiah chapter 6, what's going on here in this context is Jerusalem, the city of God, full of the people of God, had fallen into greed and lies, and unholiness. And so here comes the prophet Jeremiah, the mouthpiece of God, now speaking to them. Jeremiah uh, chapter 6, where do we start? Let's start in verse uh, 13. He says this, From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They weren't at all ashamed. They didn't know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, 
and find rest for your souls. But they said, we won't walk in it. So God is calling them to return to his good way, to his good paths, paths that would actually bring them rest for their souls by his grace, but they are stubborn, disobedient, and longing for their own way. So even the religious leaders, the supposed good ones, then are saying, ah, peace, peace, everything is fine, everything's okay, we're at least better than the guys next to us, and you know what? God is really forgiving and loving, so peace, peace. Jeremiah says, there is no real peace here. You don't even realize that you are on the brink of destruction. Now it's true that God is loving, that God does forgive. This happens by faith and in repentance that he brings us to turn from sin and turn to him. But repentance, the means by which he forgives us, teaches us to learn to blush over our sin, to feel on some level real shame, sometimes in our conscience. This is the work of the Spirit. So that I'll open my eyes and go, ah, I sinned. I am sinning. I am messing this up. Oh no, I don't want that. And then that would draw me to come to him in repentance so that I can be reconciled to God, so that I can be renewed to God and by his strength be restored to God. This is the point here, to restore us by means of shame. This is true, by the way, not only in our relationship to God, but also in our relationships to each other. We want to learn good shame, to learn how to blush in the right way so that we'll recognize when we sin and hurt each other and go, oh, no, I have sinned, I have hurt you, and I was wrong. I was harsh. I've been unloving. You know, I've been really greedy and sour toward you. You know, I've said and thought things about people, people that I don't even know that were unjust and untrue. Oh no, that was sin. This sort of shame, this good means of shame, points us to repentance so that we'll turn from sin and be reconciled. Good shame, then, is like the plumber in our hearts. He goes in and noses around and sees the leaks and the clogs and the corrosions and goes, there's a few problems here. So that, not, not just to say, oh, peace, peace, everything's fine when the whole basement is filling up with water. And that plumber's actually drawing us to pay attention to it so that it can be faced and dealt with and so that it can be healed. 
This is a good means of shame. Now, all that said, Paul has said that he is confident that he will be delivered from shame. So we know that not all shame is good. In fact, much of our experience with shame is bad. You know, very early in Genesis, Adam and Eve were in the garden and completely naked, and they didn't have shame over that. This is before the fall and a good creation. That was a good thing for them. So many of us might have shame about our bodies. We feel like something about us is the wrong shape or size. We might struggle with our complexion or maybe even skin color. And when we experience shame in those areas, we need deliverance from that sort of shame. Or there are others who might think shame is the same as humbleness. And so I'm constantly supposed to drag myself on the ground and just, oh, you know, oh, I, oh life is, is rough and terrible, that if I'm trying to be this sort of humble as I think about it in my mind, that that's actually good. So, so we end up being very self-deprecating and, and don't know how to receive even small compliments from others and just say thank you. Paul does call us to humbleness, but not that. Not that sort of humbleness, not that sort of shame, that sort of shame we need deliverance from. And others of us, in fact, probably many or most of us might experience a shame that's sort of like a sign painted above the door in our house. That even after we've been confronted by sin and faced it, repented of it, even gone to a person, if a person's involved, and said, this was wrong, how can we make this better? And shame then has done its good work that it remains painted above our doorpost and constantly nags us. So the moms and dads who very often replay the mistakes they made with their kids over the years, and that tape rolls over and over and over in their minds. That's not good shame. And we need deliverance from that. There are lots of places in which shame is not good, not from God, it is harmful. So the question for us now is, what kind of shame does Paul mean here? What kind of shame is he being delivered from? We went to college at KU. KU's claim to fame is basketball. March Madness is the holy season. And one March, while we were in school there, uh, in the very first round of the NCAA tournament, we played a tiny little school called Bucknell that no one had heard of unless you went to that school. No shame to them, just didn't know who they were. Very first round, and our big, powerful, important school 
it was awful. It even shows how much we put on Vax, all I suppose. But the next day, I, I clearly remember this in my mind. The next day we had classes. You could feel it in the air on campus. People are walking around with their like heads hanging down. This is pre like cell phone uh, days, at least in the in, in the fullness that we have now. But heads hanging. It was eerily quiet. It was like this dark cloud had descended upon our school. We were put to shame by Bucknell. They left us completely embarrassed and disgraced. And I think that's what Paul means. Paul says here, I'm in prison. I know that. That's the situation. And this situation threatens to cast a dark shadow over my life and my ministry. But, says Paul, whether I live or die, whether I am released from this or not, I will not be left in disgrace. Shame will not hang around my neck and drag me down to the ground because Jesus will vindicate me. Jesus himself will lift my head. So instead of shame, Paul experiences hope. Hope. He often talks about this. Uh, There's several places we could go. Uh, A good one, a clear one, I think, is in Romans So suffering does not automatically lead to shame. That's not the automatic end, uh, that for the Christian there is hope even in the midst of suffering, and at times even because of suffering. That's what Paul's talking about here in Romans 5. He says this starting in verse 2, through him, that's Jesus, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Mm. This sort of hope, a hope that's found in God, and and this sort of shame, uh, a shame that leaves us in a sense disgraced, those two things, hope and shame, are mutually, mutually exclusive. They cannot occupy the same space. So they're like magnets of the same polarity. When you try to put them together, they push with such intensity that either your shame will drive out your hope or your hope will drive out your shame. Now, here's how we ride this wave to the end because I don't want shame to drive out my hope. I want my hope to drive out my shame. So I need to see then the way that Paul holds on to 
hope. And I think a a key for us, a helpful uh, piece for us in this is in verse, where is it? Verse 20. He says at the end, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. That's the phrase I want. Christ will be honored in my body. My Bible translates it with the word honored, but sometimes translations use the word exalted or magnified. Literally, the word there means to make large. Christ will be made large in my body. I've used this image before. Uh, It's not even mine, but it's a good one, I think a helpful one. If we think about the, the concept of something being magnified, you think about a magnifying glass or, or a microscope, those things make small things big. I put an ant under a magnifying glass or an, an amoeba so that I can see it. That's not how we magnify Christ. Christ is not magnified like a microscope, He is magnified like a telescope not making small things large. So telescope is used for things like stars, which are already big. They're they're huge, but they look small to us. So a telescope is helping our small eyes to see the bigness of a thing. So the way that Christ is magnified here is helping us to see how big he really is. That when our lives magnify Christ, we are showing his bigness. So Paul says, I'm in prison, uh, but whether I'm released or retained, you'll see how truly big Jesus is. So there is no way that you can put me to shame. As we look at the life of Paul, some of us might now be wondering, thinking about ourselves, going, hmm, could I do that like Paul does? Could I live like that? Could I have that mindset like Paul does? I I wonder if I have that much faith, if I have that much courage, if I have that much hope. And as we wonder these things, we might start to feel fear and doubt and shame creep in. If you think that, let me just gently say to you that these are the wrong questions to ask. Could I this? Could I this? If you're asking those things, you've got your telescope turned the wrong way. If you're looking at yourself, of course you will find yourself insufficient for these things. You know, so is Paul, so am I. We're all sufficient, insufficient for these things. What we want instead is to flip the eyepiece around point the telescope really at Jesus so we can see his bigness and see that he is the one who's sufficient for all things, that it is his spirit who delivers us. So whether I am released from prison 
by earthquakes that, that, that shake the floor and the, the, the chains fall off my wrists and the door springs open in a flabbergasting miracle of God, or if I remain behind bars until either my neck meets the sword or my hair grows gray and weary, Jesus will be the one to hold us fast. And when we see all things clearly, Christ will be vindicated. He will be proved right in us. So Christ will be magnified in our body, whether by life or by death. And as a result, I will be delivered and I will not be ashamed. Would you pray with me? Lord Almighty, that is true, that your might is huge, that you are almighty. Lord, would you show your bigness in our lives? Would you make it yourself magnified in us so that no matter our circumstances we would not be bent down in disgrace but we would be lifted up in your hope we do trust you for all things as our great and powerful God so we give you praise in Jesus name Amen